Hello, I'm Ono Murku, and welcome to Reimagining Capital Projects, a podcast series that explores the impact of innovation and evolving technologies on the capital project, infrastructure, and wider real estate sectors. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two new guests who specialize in urban transport disruption. Kirsty Gladwin, a transport consultant from PwC who was previously an operational director for the London Cycle Hire Scheme, and Philip Ellis, a co-founder of Burl, a bike share tech startup, and for those of you who read Forbes, you may recognize them from the 30 under 30 for industry. Welcome to you both. Great to be here, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. We should say, uh, I used to work for Phil, he used to be my boss when I was uh, an employee at Beryl, so we go back a little way. Well, so hopefully we hear some good stories uh, <laughs> over the next few minutes. Um, so today we'll be looking at the role of technology and what it has done in disrupting urban transport, particularly around user habits and needs. So Phil, this is something that's the core objective of Burl. Um, how might our listeners know your company for starters? Uh, the thing that we're probably best known for to uh, your everyday uh, person on the street is providing the cycle safety equipment to the Santander bike share scheme. So if you've seen the green bike laser projection on the bikes, then uh, that's, uh, that's the thing that, that we're best known for. And we've, uh, we've grown that up from a consumer business, um, sell that and a range of cycling products all over the world, as well as working with bike share in other cities such as New York, Montreal, and from a couple of weeks time, Glasgow as well. So a pretty global enterprise at this stage, yeah? Yes. And you've now started to look a lot more at bike share itself, and you've kind of reoriented the business a bit toward that market. That's right, right? Don? Yeah, so we, we started, as I say, as a cycling safety business. And with our contracts with bike share, we've effectively tried to, to move ourselves higher up the value chain in, in delivering bike share contracts. So going from a, a lighting supplier to a lighting supplier, including all on-bike technology, using IoT technologies and providing some additional data on the bikes. And we've naturally continued that on into a sort of uh, a full product uh, that can serve bike share pretty much in its entirety. So that's pretty interesting. So you've, you've taken it from an initial startup idea to something quite broad and technology has been at the heart of that. And I'm just curious, what impact has the, the information you mentioned, IoT, the data capture information um, you're gathering, um, having on sort of urban transport disruption, maybe from a public and a private perspective? So. I think, for, first of all, from a private perspective, we are, you know, we're a very consumer-focused business. That's where we've come from. So, uh, the impact of, of of technology, particularly, you know, uh, ubiquitous connectivity uh, and and GPS, means that consumers are are able to make uh, more dynamic decisions about how they choose to get around a city. Are you talking about things like transport apps and stuff like that? Yeah. So, tr transport apps, I think. Uh, from a consumer perspective, it, it kind of means that you're far more uh, comfortable and you, you trust the information that your phone is giving you through the, the transport app, and you'll make decisions based on that rather necessarily than decisions based on your routine. Um, it's a big opportunity there because then it's, it, it, it allows those private companies or uh, it could allow cities, if, if they provide a, a similar sort of data framework, to help, uh, to help direct people toward the journeys that you want them to make. So that's interesting. So you're getting almost live data back in from bikes and using that to inform decision-making of users. Um, Kirsty, how is that kind of pe changing people's experiences when it comes to transport on the whole, particularly in urban and major cities? Yeah, so people's, people's expectations now 
are much higher and they expect to move seamlessly between train, tram, tube, bicycle, whatever mode they want to use. And they expect that to be available wherever they are. Um, but I think we should talk a little bit more about data for a minute because all of that data that's being gathered has a value, um, especially when you consider it across all those modes, whether or not it's publicly or privately delivered. So um, Phil, what's your view on making this transport data public, including the data that you collect, because you must think there's a value to the data you've got. What's your view on sharing it out freely across the uh, so, public commons? So I think you know there's there's a definite trend and a correct trend to make data uh, public and and real time. Uh, you know, let's assume that we we're able to kind of meet the the security. Uh, the security can concerns in terms of knowing exactly where people have been and also anonymizing that. I think it's totally fair that, yeah, you know, for a, a private company such as ourselves or any other private company that is profiteering off of the public roads and the public realm, if a city has a coherent requirement for that data, then they absolutely should, should have it. So you'd feed in the data that was kind of generic about where people are moving or what they're, what they're, what transport they're using that day kind yeah. of the, at a generic level. Well, yeah, so I think a city uh, and, and cities more generally and, and the industry at large can kind of choose what that set of generic data yeah. might be, you know, which I think at its, at its most obvious is, you know, the, the, the routes that people are going. Sure, okay. Um, and, and sort of associated data with that. I think there's, that, that doesn't necessarily preclude massive opportunities for private companies to innovate off of data that sits outside of that core piece of data that cities actually want to know. Like where are people currently and where are they trying to get to and how did they get there? Beyond that, there's many other layers of data that I think private companies may be able to turn into value. I guess one of those, from your perspective, might be how you maintain your assets and how you maintain these bikes. Um, would you agree, Like, what, what are the key challenges around this um, from your perspective? Yeah, I think, uh, Predictive maintenance is obviously a thing that's massive in absolutely any, uh, well, any industry where you have a, a sort of maintenance, repairs, and operational element, but particularly in transport. Um, within within bike share specifically, your your big cost driver is is your redistribution and your service and maintenance. So, using uh, you know more accurate data on the use of your bike or the use of your asset might allow you to make more informed decisions about when to service it. So you only service a bike that actually needs doing it. And crucially, you don't take it out of service and so remove its revenue generating potential unless it absolutely needs to come into the workshop. To me, that sounds a lot like AI. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, it should be. And I think it, it, it can get there. And there are examples of, of bike share systems and, of course, examples of, of more cost intensive industries using AI for this purpose. I think within bike share itself, the big opportunity that certainly private enterprise sees on the use of AI is actually as much associated with um, driving up revenue. So making sure the bike is in the right place at the right time. You can see, for example, if, uh, you, know, if you run out of bikes next to a particular train station at 8 a.m. every day, um, and it's a Tuesday and it's sunny and a certain football team are playing that evening, whatever else it might be, you know in time through AI and through other data modeling that you should have more bikes. So it's almost machine learning in yeah. a way. 
that's really interesting. Uh, Kirsty, have, have you seen this around other maybe asset owners in this space? Yeah, well, so on the redistribution point, that's uh, a really excellent one, Phil. And I think, yes, uh, reducing the cost of maintenance on bike share schemes it, it would be a massive win. Um, but equally at the moment, distribution is a really manual process. It involves normally a person in a truck to pick up bikes and move them across town. And so the opportunity to use AI to help nudge your users into dropping their bikes somewhere slightly different to just help the ebb and flow of that mode of transport and to make it available for the next morning. So if you can persuade people to drop a few bikes at Waterloo East instead of Waterloo Main Station, uh, then you're uh, helping that redistribution a little bit and, and just going that, that, that bit further. I think that's really interesting. And I guess what you're touching on there is almost the wider transport needs of a city. Um, and for me, I'm just curious to know what, what do you think the future of transport in cities looks like from, from a bike perspective or even beyond that? Okay, so um, I think there are four ways of looking at this. It's personal, it's autonomous, it's connected and it's uh, electric. Um, and I think we talked a bit about the autonomous and connected already. So I'll just expand on the, the personal one, um, which is that it's not uh, just about uh, there being lots of modes of transport out there. It's about retaining the option for the user to pick their preferred mode of transport. So you might want to take a journey across London on a bike and you might want that to be the fastest route. But equally, you might want the most pollution free route and uh, there are different ways for the user to engage in their journey and to be able to, to select the options that they want for their journey. So I think transport's going to become more and more highly personalised. And that for me is also about the self-determination of the, of the user. You want that person to retain a choice. Um, now equally, uh, think about autonomous cars, means not uh, always having to get in a vehicle that's autonomous. Sometimes you actually want to drive and having your own car can fulfill other basic needs that you might have. Um, so yeah, personal is the first and probably the major one that we I, haven't covered today. I'm, I'm curious in that as well, because what you described there as well could also be interpreted as agnostic transport solutions. So in a way, I want to get from A to B and I don't care how I get there. Yeah. And I suppose transport apps are driving that. Is, is that something that you see in this sort of tech transport space, Phil? Um, well, I think, I, you know, I think private companies would say that you know if you deliver the best customer experience the customer won't actually be agnostic to the form of transport that they'll get you will have brand loyalty to the the provider of the service that you like the most um, so the opportunity there is and that's great for consumers because it means everyone is going to focus more heavily on delivering you that experience that that, that is good um, and and that might be good to different people you know somebody might want might judge it on economic terms, what's cheaper. Some people might judge it on environmental terms, some people might judge it on comfort. I guess, coming from a startup perspective, um, it's really trying, it's almost challenging to try to break into this kind of space of a, a market that is almost dictated through years and years of habits of customers, and particularly almost years away of working, particularly around government entities. And I'm, I'm curious, um, Phil, what's it like as a startup, particularly in the transport space, which is so well defined in people's minds, to come in and try and disrupt it, particularly at that sort of local and maybe more of a local government or national level? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and, and to be fair, for our company, we are a supplier often to the, the people who are, are actually owning that end customer relationship. So, yeah, I mean, we, we've experienced a couple of different uh, experiences of, of kind of how we 
are able to work with these the big complicated organizations transport authorities or, or big outsourcing customers um, I think uh, you know in, in with regards to working with 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 government organizations um, you know they are rightly risk averse like and I, that's that's not necessarily done or said in a negative way that's that's almost sort of one of the, the roles that they have to play and so to work with a, a startup um, we were very fortunate to, to start to convince the sort of the prime subcontractors uh, in this country and in, and in the US um, that we had a kind of credibility and we had a product that, that their client would want. So it's almost gaining that level of trust. Yeah, th your first route in though was to offer a, a safety benefit yeah. and, uh, and, and actually to play on that risk averse side and to, st and to bring something to the table that improved the visibility of the cyclist and their footprint on the road so that when they were in the blind spot of a double-decker bus they could be seen and so from uh, an, a local authority perspective or a city authority perspective you were literally offering something that was going to help them save lives and it was it was that understanding of their risks and their worries that then enabled you to have the conversation about all the exciting things that you could you could then bring to the table. Yeah, and what I like about that, that that solution you have, it's a simple solution, but it's really effective in what it does. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm just, what I'm curious about is, was there a, going into work with a big agency, um, like a local authority or, or a, a, the wider London authorities, um, for example, was, was there a kind of a culture clash in terms of that ways of working, in terms of you, you're a startup, you want to get things done quickly, whereas they might have a more traditional way of doing things? Yeah, I mean, Definitely to a certain extent, but you know, on the same side, you know, running a, a startup as an entrepreneur, you're like fairly resolutely focused on first of all your your core goals, which is, as you say, Kirsty, cycle safety and, and protecting cyclists, encouraging cycling. But secondly, revenue generation, and it's clear that these these opportunities generate good re good revenue, and so the culture clashes or not necessarily culture clashes but just the, the different ways of working was uh, yeah was a, a, a real challenge I guess from a bike perspective that's interesting because um, you're going in there to try and deliver a product and obviously be as profitable and as effective as you can be and gain a reputation for doing good work but they're in there trying to solve a problem that that's the heart of what they do uh, I'll take for example the NO2 levels across the UK now it's, it's in the it's in the media quite a bit the levels are exceeding um, the European standards in a lot of major cities I, I suppose something like that is also a core mission statement um, for an enterprise like yourselves yes I mean we, we looked quite heavily at you know now that you've got this amount of technology on the bike we have the, the core pillars you need power GPS connectivity like what other sensors can you employ on a bike or a scooter or an e-bike or whatever mode of transport to to add to the city's understanding of, of things like that yeah we, we did look quite heavily at that but then again you know as a startup we have to sort of uh, focus on the things that we are, are kind of again true to our our kind of values which is you know our belief in in certainly in, in cycling that it will be you know it is the cheapest most environmentally friendly, most socially equitable, most enjoyable way to get across the city. And so for us... Except when it's raining. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, for now. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's another yeah. problem to solve. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but like, I, I think you take your point there. From, from the NO2 perspective, um, it's all about reducing the pollution. And then obviously that kind of um, scenario really, really aids well to it. Uh, I'm curious, Kirsty, um, I suppose to wrap up this discussion, really, what are the biggest opportunities that you f see in the sort of transport disruption kind of space and 
maybe what does the future hold for its technology within it? Uh, I'll leave you with two ideas, uh, I guess. One is that it's going to be all about the connectivity between the different modes and the seamless customer journey. And, and that's going to take advantage of both public and private modes of transport. Um, and then the other one is about infrastructure. And you know, we've got two kinds of city in the world. We've got uh, cities that are old and already have a load of infrastructure that we're going to have to figure out how to uh, change that to take account of the new modes of transport. And you've got cities that are not yet born uh, where these new forms of transport are going to find it so much easier to just be the norm. And uh, my question is, how do you make sure that those cities don't overtake um, cities that, that are uh, older and, and already in existence? So, Phil, from your perspective, uh, what are the key opportunities that lie in the transport space going forward? So I think the thing that's interesting about transport is other industries are looking at uh, how bike share, scooter share, e-bike share and things like that have a role to play in in mobility more generally. Automotive companies, technology companies, networked companies can see that the behaviours that people have in using a bike share is more like getting around a city in the way that Kirsty described earlier, i.e. autonomous, you go exactly where you want to go and personal, you get the service that you want to get. So I think that's why there's a big opportunity for companies such as myself. I think also, uh, interestingly, there's, there's, there's a sort of vehicle that we haven't yet seen, potentially, some sort of individual personalised electric powered vehicle that uh, meets the safety requirements and potentially meets some of the uh, environmental hazards of, of moving around a city as well. And I don't think this is going anywhere. There's, there's relatively sort of politically broad support for any policies that encourage people to get out of cars and to get across a city in, in a more environmentally friendly way. So um, those, those sorts of things are coming out all the time. Even recently the City of London put their uh, transport strategy out which sets out a really bold vision basically saying yes you know we, we are quite serious about not letting people drive your polluting cars in our cities. A great sentiment to kind of end this podcast on. Um, my thanks to you both. Um, it's been a really really interesting discussion. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I want to thank everybody at home for listening. I hope you enjoyed it too. Um, we will be back again soon for more discussion on, and debate on all things innovation and technology. And in the meantime, should you wish to learn more about transport disruption or the Internet of Things or any of the other topics we discussed today, um, please check out our website at pwc.co.uk forward slash reimagine. Please subscribe to the series to get all the latest episodes. And please don't forget to rate and review. All our past content is available online too, so check it out if you haven't done so already. So until next time, thank you all for listening.